Good morning. Welcome to Axios Today. It's Monday, August 15th. I'm Nyla Boudou. Here's what we're covering today. School districts get creative to solve teacher shortages. Plus, India and Pakistan mark an important anniversary. But first, Afghanistan's economic calamity is today's one big thing. It's been one year since the fall of Afghanistan's capital city, Kabul, and the start of Taliban rule in the country. Shortly after, the U.S. completed its troop withdrawal from Afghanistan. And since then, its economy has imploded and worsened an existing humanitarian crisis. Per capita income in Afghanistan is now about $375 per year, its lowest in more than a decade. And more than half the population faces acute food insecurity. Axios' chief financial correspondent, Felix Salmon, has the story. Hi, Felix. Good morning, Nyla. Felix, first, can you tell us what the relationship was between the American economy and the Afghanistan economy at the time of withdrawal a year ago? So basically, for most of the 20-odd years between 2001 and 2021, the Americans just poured money into Afghanistan to try and keep it stable, to try and support the government. If you looked at the government budget, well over half of that budget was just money that came directly from the United States in the form of grants. We wouldn't just pay to put our military in Afghanistan. We paid hundreds of millions of dollars a year to run the government, basically, or at least to support the government with cash. The minute we pulled out of Afghanistan, we didn't just pull out troops. We pulled out all of that money as well. And is that the main explanation for why in the past 12 months things have gotten so bad? So there are four main reasons why things have got bad. One is just that Afghanistan is being now run by the Taliban, and the Taliban are not the world's greatest people when it comes to running any country. So like, we will 100% put a certain amount of blame here on the Taliban, but not all of it. Because the next thing that happened is that Afghanistan had lost all of that money that they had grown accustomed to over the past 20 years. Then the Americans put a bunch of sanctions on dealing with the Taliban. So a bunch of banks, if you want to send money to Afghanistan, deal with Afghanistan in terms of import, export, any, anything like that, a bunch of banks are going to say, yeah, no, I'm a little bit worried about running into the sanctions regime, so I'm not going to do that. So it's very difficult to do any kind of economic commerce with anyone in Afghanistan. And then finally, Afghanistan, like all countries, has a central bank. The central bank, like all developing countries, is reliant on its foreign reserves. The minute that the Taliban took over the government, the United States and other foreign governments froze $9 billion of foreign reserves belonging to the Afghan people. And without access to those foreign reserves, the central bank basically can't do its job. So you get just this perfect storm, which is terrible for normal Afghan people. What has been the international reaction to the current humanitarian crisis in Afghanistan, or also the international monetary community's reaction to it? So the United States basically sets the lead for that. So money from the World Bank or the IMF, that basically went to zero when the Americans pulled out. About $7 billion of those central bank reserves were in the United States, but another $2 billion were in Europe. Those were frozen as well. The United Nations and affiliated non-government organizations like Human Rights Watch or the IRC, they are really raising the alarm and saying, we need billions of dollars in aid to really help the people of Afghanistan. But while in principle, 
everyone in the international community would love to help the Afghans without helping the Taliban. The fact is that the Taliban are the government. And if you really want to help a country of 40 million people, you kind of need to be working somehow with the government of that country. Axios is Felix Salmon. Thanks, Felix. Thank you. Another anniversary to mark today, 75 years of Indian independence from British rule. At the stroke of the midnight hour, when the world sleeps, India will awake to life and freedom. That's the beginning of a famous speech by India's first prime minister, Jawaharlal Nehru, on the eve of independence. But the creation of the world's largest democracy on August 15, 1947, also came with a high cost, the partition of India in the creation of Pakistan. The separation caused riots and religious violence that led to mass casualties. Anywhere from half a million to two million people were killed. It was also one of the largest mass migrations in human history, with more than 15 million people displaced. Many families were split in the partition, and today social media is playing a role in reuniting some, but relations between India and Pakistan remain tense. In a moment, how school districts are responding to teacher shortages. Welcome back to Axios Today. I'm Nyla Boudou. Teaching has become one of the most draining and difficult jobs in America. Today's teachers are navigating the threat of school shootings, a pandemic, and intensifying political interference in their lesson plans, all while wages remain stagnant. As a result, many teachers have been quitting, leaving schools understaffed and scrambling. So now school districts are turning to extraordinary measures to get enough teachers in their classroom for this upcoming school year. Here to walk us through some of those efforts is Axios' Erica Pandy, who's been reporting on this. Hey, Erica. Hey, Nyla. Erica, I listed the reasons why, but are we clear on how bad this has actually gotten? So let's start with making new teachers, right? So in the 1970s, the U.S. you know minted roughly 200,000 new teachers a year. That's fallen to below 90,000. Then you're seeing kind of early retirements. So uh, NEA, National Education Association survey, found that 55% of educators are considering leaving their profession earlier than they planned. And then the shortage, of course, is really intense in the areas where you feel it the most. So you see rural districts having big shortages. You see a shortage of special education teachers that are really in demand across all schools. And it's really just it's hitting every part of the country and it's hitting every part of the country really hard. And let's talk about stagnant wages. What are teacher wages looking like, especially when we line them up against this economy? Right. So this stat is really, really sobering. So the wage gap between teachers and others in the workforce that have comparable educations but are not in the teaching profession was about 21% in 2018. And that disparity has grown. So back in 1996, there was only a a 6% kind of pay cut you took if you wanted to become a teacher. And that's just really, really started to grow as the years have gone on. So what are some states doing to try to recruit more teachers? So states are starting to go to these extreme measures. So for example, Des Moines Public School is offering a 50000 incentive to teachers, nurses, and administrators who are getting close to retirement and asking them, here, we'll give you this incentive. Please stay through this year. And then you've got Dallas that recently set aside $51 million for salary increases and $52 million for retention bonuses. 
Then you've got the Florida Department of Education said that it would issue a temporary teaching certificate to veterans who have not yet earned their bachelor's degree. Or, you know, some districts, Michigan is trying to get folks who are janitors or school bus drivers to see if they can upskill them to become teachers because at least they know that they, you know, have an affinity for working with kids and they've got that familiarity already. So you see a lot of different things happening, but superintendents as a whole are pretty worried about the direction the profession is going. Just the pool of applications they're getting are, you know, lower in quality and quantity from what they were seeing just 10 years ago. The things that you're describing are stopgap measures. What are people talking about doing to address this problem long term? There aren't a lot of big efforts we're seeing to fix the whole pipeline problem because, you know, it it really is about money. That's what we hear. You just have to pour more money into getting people to become teachers. You need to just kind of market this profession more to the talented young people in this country. And that isn't happening at that scale because right now we're dealing with the fire that's happening today right now. Next, this is Erica Pandy, who writes the Finish Line newsletter. Thank you, Erica. Thanks, Nyla. That's it for us today. If you have a moment, I'd love it if you could rate our podcast. It makes it easier for other people to find the show. I'm Nyla Boodoo. Thanks for listening. Stay safe. And I'll see you back here tomorrow morning.